Uh, If we haven't met yet, my name is Charles Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here at Red Mountain. I'd love to meet you. So if you... uh, if we haven't met, please come up and say hi to me, and, uh, and that would just be wonderful, really encouraging to me. Uh, we're continuing our look this morning at the life of David, and this morning we're looking at a life that's on the run, that David is a fugitive, because King Saul has now recognized him as a threat, the current King Saul has recognized him as a threat, and, and is pursuing David to try and eliminate him. And one of the most fascinating stories I ever heard about, uh, about the life of a fugitive uh, was about a man named Bob Cooley. Some of you might have heard this story, um, but he, he was a lawyer for the mob in Chicago in the 1970s and 80s. And uh, if you're at all familiar with life in Chicago during that time, you'll know that uh, organized crime operated with almost near impunity there. And Bob Cooley was one of the reasons why. He was known as a fixer, which simply meant that he had the connections and the charisma in order to move money around amongst corrupt judges, corrupt politicians, uh, corrupt prosecuting attorneys, uh, uh, in order to have cases against the mafia fixed and thrown out of court. That was what he did. And he led a a grand life because of that. And then uh, uh, at some point, I think it was 1986, He had a change of heart, and he said he realized that what he had been doing for so many years just made him sick to his stomach. Uh, He just couldn't, he was getting a sense of just how corrupt everything was, and he walked into a federal prosecutor's office and confessed to what he had been doing and offered himself as an informant to work with them Uh, in an undercover way in order to incriminate these people that he had been working with. And so for for years, he really took his life into his own hands and wore microphones to meetings where he got uh, politicians and judges to to incriminate themselves. And uh, there are 24... Uh, corrupt judges and politicians and mafia mafiosos that are now in prison because of the work that Bob Cooley did. It's, re- it's really incredible. But what's interesting to me was that he then went on, had to go on the run. After all that was settled in the aftermath, his life was in very real danger. And he knew that if he stayed in Chicago, uh, they, they would kill him very quickly. And so he took what little cash he had left and the clothes on his back and he drove away into hiding. He actually refused witness protection because he didn't think that they would be uh, secret. He, he felt they didn't think that they had the ability to protect him. So he protected himself. And the reason that we know of uh, anything about what his current life looks like was because he, did, he, he allowed an interview, a long set of interviews with a journalist who was sworn to secrecy. But, but what we know is that the life of a fugitive uh, whose life is threatened is very, very hard. He w- once lived a grand life and now he rents a very small room in a small ranch house on the edge of a desert in southwest America. That's all we know about him. And we also know that he's uh, very lonely. That there are very few people that actually kind of know him and know who he is. He's had to keep to himself. And we also know that he's had to reinvent himself over and over and over again. There was an interesting part of the interview where he pulled out a bunch of old identification cards. 
and credit cards. And he started flipping them down and he said, hey, this guy's dead. And this guy's dead. Because what would happen is every time he got even an inch that somebody was getting close and he became afraid for his life, that he had to kill off that former identity and invent a new one in another place. The shedding of one and forging a new identity was fundamental to his survival. And when we look at this passage, we're looking at a man who's been given an identity, and an an identity has been placed on him. It's not one that he chose for himself, but God chose him to be the next king of Israel. And, and, And he hasn't even done anything wrong yet. But this identity has placed his life in great danger, and he is now a fugitive from the king. And so what does he do? And where, where does he go? And how does he wrestle, carry with him this identity that's been given to him? And how does God take care of him all along the way? Those are the questions that we're going to ask as we look at this passage. Let's look together. This is 1 Samuel chapter 21. I'm going to read that chapter and then the first two verses of chapter 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, and the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. 
Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I like madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us now. That just as you provided for David, that you would provide for us now, that we would be nourished in faith, that you would increase our trust in you, and help us as we lean into this passage, give us the gift of concentration, and help me, your servant, to speak well to these friends, that I might be clear and honoring to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So the questions we ask of any text are important. Uh, At this point in David's life, I'd like to ask you a question. Do you think that David is happy that God has chosen him to be the next king of Israel? I mean, just think about it. David had a place on 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 a shepherd's farm with his father and his brothers, his family. It was a simple life. It was a hard life. But now he's homeless and on the run and alone. David, at one point, was honored as a young boy to serve in the king's courts. And for all of that, the king threw spears at him twice. And he came across one of those precious friendships, you know, the ones that are life-giving that we really treasure And he will not see Jonathan again for the rest of this story. Here we see David alone, hungry, vulnerable, and homeless. Do you think that David is happy that God has chosen him for this role and with the trajectory that his life is on? That's a question for him to answer. But it's very similar to one that, that we ask too. Like we look at, the, we know something David doesn't. We know that he eventually does become king. We know that he, 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 uh, he, one day he does preside over the kingdom of Israel. The question that for us is not, uh, is this going to work out for David? But how is it going to work out for David? But we often ask similar questions of our own lives, right? Like we too, like David, are children of a promise. And we've been given an incredible identity. It's been placed on us. That as followers of Christ, we belong to God. That is fundamentally true about who we are. And that identity is all bound up with promises that have been made to us of, of, of what our standing before the Lord looks like and, and his ongoing care over us. And that one day we will live in a world that's free of evil and death. And often when we look at the shape of our own lives, it can feel at times like it must have felt to David that The trajectory of our lives are moving farther away from those promises than they are moving toward him. And so what we look at when we look at this passage 
is David carrying this unique identity all bound up in promise on the run going to three different places with three different needs seeing his fundamental needs being met by God all along the way. That David is the constant object of God's providential kindness. So we're going to look at this here. We're going to look at three different locations and the way God extends his providential care to David in three different ways. And those three ways, if you're note takers, here, here we go. The first is provision, then protection, then company. That's what we're going to look at as we look at these, taking each uh, location in turn. First, provision. The first place that David goes is Nob. It's a place called Nob. That's where the sanctuary is. It's just a few miles south of where he was with Jonathan when he was in the fields. And, and the scene when David arrives is, is, uh, is just very, very curious. Because Ahimelech comes to David and he's shaking with fear. Terror, the word that's used here, terror might be a better description to describe uh, what Ahimelech is feeling when he comes to him. We don't know exactly why, but there are all kinds of possible reasons. It could be that he knows that David is persona non grata, for Saul, that Saul is hunting him to kill him. It could be that he knows that. It could be that David looks manic. I mean, the guy has been spending the night in fields for the last few nights, and he's hungry. It could be something in David's demeanor. It could have something to do with the man that's, that's also included in this text in verse 7, this guy named Doeg. Now, that, that is, a, that is a, a, a sinister warning of things to come that that man is there. And, and it's just very odd and very curious that he's there. That what we know about Doeg is that he's an Edomite. Now, an Edomite is a classic enemy of God's people. The Israelites fought against the Edomites. And so it would be very curious that Saul would take an Edomite and place him in, as one of his officials, the head of the uh, chief herdsman. But he's there surveilling what's going on. It says he was detained before the Lord, which suggests that he was there under some form of discipline. But the way this story is told just makes it seem very ominous. And into this ominous environment, David is making asks. And the first thing that he asks for, or before he makes this ask, he tries to calm Ahimelech by deceiving him. Did you notice that? That David, David is lying to Ahimelech in this passage, right? What does he tell him? He says uh, that he, he tries to explain that he's actually on a mission for the king. And he's very vague with these details. He says, I have an appointment with some young men in such and such a place. Like, I love that. Like, if you were a Himalek, would you believe that David's being honest with you at this point? It, it sounds super vague, right? Intentionally vague. But then he asks for two things. He asks for bread and he asks for a sword. And this means something to me, and I want it to mean something to you, but I, I, don't know, I don't know what yet. But it is profoundly interesting that David goes to a sanctuary in search of practical needs. He goes to a sanctuary and asks for bread and a weapon, fundamental implements that he needs in order to continue his journey. And how did, how did Ahimelech respond well, first he tells David that the only bread he has was the bread of presence. Now, that, you can read about that. That's, uh, that's, that practice is seen in Exodus 25, Leviticus 24. Basically, the way it goes is that every Sabbath, the priests would put 12 
hot loaves of bread before the altar, representing the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And every week, every Sabbath, those loaves would be replaced, and the priests had the honor of eating that week old bread that came out of the altar. It's probably not tasty bread. But the law is that only the priest could eat it. Nobody else was allowed to eat the bread of the presence after it had served its purpose. And and if it was forbidden to, to give away the bread of the presence to David, certainly it would be unpopular to give away the sword of Goliath. I mean, it was, the, the, the reason that sword is there is that as worshiping people came to the sanctuary, it would remind them of God's great redemption, act of redemption that's worked out on behalf of them. It was there for a purpose, in a God-honoring way. And yet what Ahimelech did is he bent, maybe even broke the rules of God's law in order to allow David to take these things and run off with them. And what's, what's really interesting about this is Jesus will later condemn, or sorry, commend, not cond- the opposite of condemn. He will later commend this decision that Ahimelech made. I heard one pastor put it this way. He said that Ahimelech bent the rules of the law in order to attend to the spirit of the law. That attending to the man in his need, in his hunger, and in his vulnerability was more important than keeping the ceremonial law in this passage, is what we see. So that's how God provides for David at Nob. And then he goes on the run, of, he gets them like from an unlikely place in an unlikely way. And then he goes on the run again. And it's there that we see God moving to protect David, okay? So David travels from Nob to Gath. And this is, only what I, this is what I can only call a really curious decision, okay? Gath is where Goliath is from. That's Goliath's hometown. You may remember that from when we looked at that passage. It, it, David fought against Goliath of Gath. It's a Philistine stronghold. <laughs> David goes to a Philistine stronghold, and what's he carrying with him? The sword of Goliath. Like, you just got to wonder, is David actually in his right mind when he makes this, this decision? But there he goes. He's off to, uh, he's off to that place, to Gath. And, and what's interesting is when he's amongst the company of his enemies, they identify him almost immediately. In fact, they know, they know him as a noted Israel, Israelite warrior. And they quote the song that the Israelites sang praising David that you see all the way back in chapter 18. That the, the, what is it? That the, uh, David, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Like the counselors to the king have the future king of Israel in their grasp. They've got him dead to rights. And when we, con- and, uh, and when we consider what he's doing there and what he's actually asking for, we can't actually be sure. The text doesn't tell us what he was looking for, but it's possible most people think he was likely going there in order to hire himself out as a mercenary soldier. That's a theory that's out there. And it makes some sense because later he will accomplish that. Like, he'll try again uh, with some better results than the ones that he got here. But they identify him immediately, um, and, uh, and he finds that instead of finding the protection of King Achish, he actually needs to be protected from King Achish. So what does he do? He deceives them again. Like this is David again, hiding, hiding who he is. 
And he deceives them again, and he feigns insanity. Uh, He scratches marks on the gates to the city. And he, uh, it's just gross. I have a beard. It's just gross. I'm not going to repeat it, but just the image of what he does with his drool is gross, okay? And, uh, and Achish is deceived. He, he, uh, he, instead of listening to his counselors telling him who David is, he responds with the kind of superior sarcasm that only a king is really capable of. He says, do I not have enough crazy people around me? And so he dismisses David. And and David escapes again from the clutches of the same enemy that he just put himself, whose hands he just put himself into. Now let's take a breath. David needs a breath here, and we do too. Because these two stories are dramatic, they're a little weird, right? Um, they're beautiful and they're fun and uh, they're interesting. They give us a little insight into David. But you might be asking at this point, you hear me saying that God protected David. And you hear me saying that God provided for David. But nowhere in this text is God actually mentioned. If you're asking that question, I want you to know that's a really good question to ask. Like, is God actually moving in here, or is David uh, that kind of crafty or uh, just really effective? What's actually going on in this passage? And I would submit to you that God's providential movements on behalf of David are actually the highlight of these stories, even if they're not named explicitly. That both of these stories point to the ongoing providential kindness working itself out on the person on whom his favor rests. First, because these stories are just weird, right? Like, I mean, just think about it. David goes to a sanctuary in order to get his practical needs met. Is that the first place you would, like, if you're hungry, do you come to, do you go to a sanctuary? And we also see that God's rule is being bent in the same place where God's rule is normally heralded and honored. And in the second story, one of the things you see, I just don't, I just don't, it's hard for me to buy it. Like either David's acting job is really, really good, or King Achish is really, really stupid, which I don't think is true, or there's something else going on here. That actually, David, the story of David is often so much more about what it's pointing to than it is about the person of David itself. And these stories are talking about how God took care, provided for, protected David all along the way, especially when his life was in danger. That David is the child of a promise and God keeps his promises. And this is grace itself. That even when David is hiding who he is, God is still taking care of him. And you know, that's just the way David sees it too. He writes two psalms about these experiences. Psalm 34, which we took a piece of earlier in the service, and Psalm 56, 
are about this scenario in Gath. And you know what he says? He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. He's the one who delivers. When the righteous call for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from their troubles. He says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. To David, God is the one who's delivering him. God is the one who's protecting him and supplying him with every need along the way. You have delivered my soul from death, is what he says about that passage. That God isn't mentioned anywhere in the story, and yet to David, he's the major player in the whole scene. One pastor calls this a God imagination. A fundamental way of seeing the world under the weight of God's movement in it. That God is actually far more active. I might, you and I might just call it faith. That, that faith is the capacity to see the world and our whole lives under the primary movement of God's activity. What some people might call good fortune, we might call God keeping his promises. And my question to you this morning is simply this. What, do you, what would you call it? Like, how do you make sense of a complex life? Where you bring with it complex affections? What Matt said earlier, he said, will is tricky because we often operate with divided wills, even contradictory wills. And we're bringing all of these things into a complex world and interacting with other complex people with complex affections. Like, it, that can be a lot to keep track of. It can be really hard to make sense of it. And my question is, do you believe in a God who can? That even as we make our way forward, stumbling more often than we get it right, do you believe in a God who's actually at work all the time and in every way and can actually make sense of, of where the world's story is going and not just the world's but yours? Let me ask it this way. Do you, do you wake up feeling the immense pressure to get it right? Or do you believe in a God who is making it right? You and I were children of a promise, but we weren't promised the throne room of Israel. Some might say this is a better deal. Thank you, Lord, for protecting me from that kind of pressure. We're just not built for it. But instead of making us kings, he did us one better and he sent us a king. And the Christian claim is that when Jesus came into the world, he came as a king. And that when he when he was born, he entered into hostile territory and he felt every bit of the weakness of our lives, of the vulnerability that you and I feel. We, we feel vulnerable in ways beyond our control. Jesus knew what that felt like. The Bible tells us that Jesus knows what temptation was like. And instead of, instead of protecting his life, he gave his life. And, and there are times when we feel like that truth of the gospel that we treasure is, uh, is all we get from Jesus. As if the gospel ends at the crucifixion and that faith and that sacrifice that makes us right before God are the promise. Like 
Like we're held by a promise in the future, but when Jesus left, it's like he nodded his head to his disciples and said, good luck. You're on your own. But God's promises don't stop just with your justification. They also continue with your sanctification. That Jesus made a promise to finish the work that he started in each of you. And not just to sanctify you, but to sanctify and repair the world that you live in. That's the promise. And the challenge of faith for you and for me is is the same hand of providence that's at work taking care of David actually the primary agent at work in your own life. That's the challenge of faith before us every day that we wake up to. And I just don't think it's a coincidence that when David goes to a sanctuary, he receives bread and a sword. Two of the most common ways that God uses to describe his own word. God's word is bread, nourishing us. God's word is a sword that does surgery on our own hearts and actually protects us. That God tells us that one of the most fundamental practical needs for the nourishing of our faith is found right here in this book. That he, that he calls us into holy places amongst God's people and gives us his word that we would be nourished by it and strengthened by it. But that's, that he doesn't just... He, he doesn't just He doesn't just leave us on our own, but he gives us each other and he gives us his word that we would be strengthened by these things. And then he gives us practices like communion, that we would be fortified in faith, that we would meet the challenge of faith that we are given to. What is it that we pray after communion? By which faith is nourished, hope increased, that he he, he gives us over to this challenge But he also gives us the tools that we need in order to take care of us while we wait for him. And yet with all these reasons for strength, we often feel weak, don't we? And I want you to know, if that's you this morning, you're in good company. Look at who was attracted to David. I'm going to start in verse 1. David departed and escaped to Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul, bitter in soul means discontent, gathered to him and he became captain over them. And there were 400 men who was gathered to David those who felt the distress of their lives. Those who were in debt and felt like they couldn't get out of it. And those who were deeply discontented with the trajectory of their lives, bitter in soul. And it occurs to me that this is the first place in this story where David is actually honest about who he is. And these people who were opposed by the world, hunted by Saul even if they don't know it, are far safer in those caves with a life centered on their king on whom God's favor rests than they would be anywhere else. 
it's not all unlike that, the people that Jesus attracted to him. I mean, he pulled in fishermen. He pulled in the uneducated. He pulled in, uh, he pulled in traitors and even a terrorist. And those people formed the, nu- the nucleus of what would, be- would become the new Israel. And they were far safer with Jesus on whom God's favor rested than they would be anywhere else. And friends, if you follow Christ, I just want you to hear this. No matter what your life feels like, you are far safer than you know, near to Jesus, on whom God's favor rests. It is true of you too. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did. And we thank you for your promises that are transcendent and eternal, that they hold us in faith while we wait for you. And I pray that you would give us the strength to trust your providential work in the world. Holy Spirit, thank you for being sent to us. Please be at work in our hearts, holding us in faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.